Okay, this is, this is really fun for me. I've already got to do this once, so, uh, uh, but I get to introduce my friend Craig. Why don't you come up as I introduce you? You can get, get settled. But uh, Craig, Craig is a, a dear friend. We met when I was in high school. Word got around that Aaron gave his life to Christ, uh, was considering this idea of ministry, and, and Craig took me under his wing, uh, got me speaking. We did the circuit of, of churches and threw me up in front of a bunch of people and said, why don't you speak? Um, and uh, Craig's speaking here today because actually in December, some of you might recall, I shared a story about a friend of mine who does missions work, and so many of you were impacted by that. Uh, I said, well, why don't, why don't we just get Craig to come in and share? And so that's why he's here this morning. So, yeah. Right. Hi. I, uh, I kind of get a kick out of being here, too, because we do have a history. I have great respect for Aaron. I did as a young man developing his call to ministry and now to see him pastoring here and doing such an impressive job. And uh, I should let you know, you know, outside of this church, his, his reputation is very strong. Aaron's very respected as a young pastor here in the city. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to come and speak to his church. Uh, what a weird week, huh? With that Ukrainian stuff. Uh, probably better put Russian stuff. I've, uh, I've preached in Ukraine on a few occasions on just one particular trip. Was there when literally the Iron Curtain was crumbling and they still, when you would go into, into like halls where people would meet, they would still have the busts of Lenin, not quite thrown away, just sort of put away, kind of hidden behind curtains and whatnot. And uh, so it kind of, you went, hmm. And um, I spoke there to a army base of Russian Red Army soldiers, which were actually Ukrainian men, and preached and handed out Bibles after and. It was a crush, you guys. It was a crush to come and get the word. All that to say, the word has gone into the Ukraine over many years, last 30 years, more, more specifically. There's a thriving church. And God's going to fight for them. He is. God's going to fight for them. And we can do our parts, but I'm telling you, unless God fights for them, uh, what we do is going to be all around the edges. But I fully believe God's going to fight for them. He has his people. He knows his people. He loves his people. So keep praying. You know, sanctified fingers crossed. Right? All right. So my name is Craig Eagle. Aaron introduced me correctly. And I work with gypsies. And all this week I was saying to my wife, Karen, who's sitting right here, I was saying, uh, what an what a awkward week to go and talk about Romanian gypsies when everything has happened in Ukraine and Russia this week. But I know that God is working all over the world and um, still has things that he's accomplishing in many, many places. So I'll share with you what I do. 
let me tell you how this all happened. I was sitting alone in my office when an email arrived from a Romanian pastor named Bogdan. Never met him. Total stranger. He was planting a church for gypsies, and a photo was attached to his email, and here it is. This is the message. It's actually a screenshot. Uh, I need your help. God opened new doors to share the gospel. I was in Vetti village in a gypsy community and met Gabriella. There is not church, and we must go to speak about a savior. Pray for us. I read the message, sitting by myself, saw that the girl's name was Gabriella, looked at her face, looked at her holding a Bible and a gospel of John, and I was obliterated, you guys. I was obliterated into this heaving, sobbing kind of mess. I can't really explain it. Um, the, the love that Christ had for this then 17-year-old gypsy girl living in an obscure village nobody would ever have reason to visit. So I began to pray about the possibility of working with gypsies in Romania. And as I began to warm to the idea, I, I felt it would be time to share it with my, with my family. My son, Jesse, had a particularly dramatic response. Something to the effect of, Dad, you don't know these people. You can't go there. They'll harvest your organs. <laughs> if you knew Jesse, it would make sense. And I hadn't considered that or brought that before the Lord, right? <laughs> so. Let me show you a, a scripture here, Acts 16. You're familiar with this. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia, help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That was my Macedonian moment, seeing that slide, seeing that gypsy girl. Her photo was my vision, as it were. I, I knew instantly what I was to do, and I immediately made plans to go and talk of a savior. And several weeks later, I was in Romania, staying with Bogdan, the fellow who had sent me the email, and his family, which included his elderly in-laws, grandma and grandpa, and I think I've got a family picture here. There they are. That's grandma right over there on the far end. And uh, over dinner, this was just after we'd finished, that first evening, I jokingly shared uh, Jesse's comments. And to my surprise, Grandma abruptly mentioned that she'd told Bogdan, you can't have him stay here. He's a stranger from a strange land, and he'll kill us in the night. 
So between uh, Jesse's concern about my organs and Grandma's equally cryptic warning about my serial killer probabilities, we had all the makings of a good night of whodunit murder mystery. But we all survived the night. Romania has the largest population of gypsies in Europe. About 850,000. And they are despised. They are rejected. They are hated. And hated is not too strong a word. And now here I was, partnered with a church plant in a gypsy ghetto called Rudari. I think I have a picture of Rudari here I can show you. That's Rudari. Not the best picture, but it gives you an example. Um, the Romanian government gives the gypsies, you know, sort of the excess strips of land, you know, near the highway, near the, near the garbage dump. You get the picture. After a full week of church planting ministry, in Rudari, Pastor Bogdan was driving me to meet Gabriella. Who, from the age of 14 to 17, had been married three times. And she had been discarded three times. Husband number three saw her as a commodity. and subjected her to actions beyond the pale. And then abandoned her in the Canary Islands near Spain with no means or way to get back home to Romania. So she improvised and found a way, if you know what I mean. But she did manage to get home and five months later I was returning to Romania with plans to visit her in her home village of Vedia. I wanted to check on how she was doing and also to see this place where I sensed God wanted me to help plant a church. Talk about a savior. We arrived and while we were talking with some of the family in the house, I took a moment, I took a moment to pray peace. Pray peace over the home. And while I was praying, the man of the house called. Patrika. And when he was told that a pastor from Canada was in his home, he began to cry loudly. I could hear him. I could hear him over the phone over there. It was a, it was a, it was a cry of joy. Jesus taught about a person of peace. And I knew I was visiting in the home of the person of peace. Let me, let me read, let's read together Christ-specific kind of how to enter a community instructions that are found in Luke chapter 10. Look at this. 
the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. The presence of the person of peace in a community is the proof that God is at work in that community. They are the doorway to that community and to the eventual harvest. My next trip to Romania, and specifically Vedia, I set out to act upon what I was sensing, and I arranged to hold an open-air church meeting in the village. In fact, right on the fenced compound outside of Patrika's front door. He was a free believer. I think we have a picture of that church service. It was a... Uh, it was a success. Dozens of people filled the compound and through the gate and out onto the road. Several people made commitments to accept Christ and as we were, as we were packing up, Patrika walked up to me and said, my heart used to be warm to God, but now it has gone cold. And he walked away. So I, I thought and prayed for a few moments. And then I walked back over to him and I, and I grabbed his elbow. And I said, I'm, gl I'm glad you told me that. Because I'm going to pray for you every day that God begins to warm your heart again. Flew home to Canada the next day. And I kept my promise. I prayed for him every day, kept in touch with the family. I learned from Gabriella that she had gone back to her abusive man. You may ask why. I know I did. But now she was pregnant. And was going to have an abortion. In fact, it was scheduled for that, that very Tuesday afternoon. She wanted to keep the baby, but had no physical or financial way to support it. Uh, her parents didn't want the baby in their home. Even her married sisters didn't support the pregnancy. And so, from 7,000 miles away, by my cell phone, I fought for that baby's life.
I said, whatever it takes, we will save that innocent life. And I walked her back from the edge of the cliff. Knowing full well that I still had to uh, speak for God to her parents. A few weeks later, I was scheduled to go back to Romania, and Gabriella got word that I was coming. She messaged me and said, the next time you see me, I will have a big belly. And I said, well, that makes two of us. And then I thought, thank you, Jesus, that baby's still alive. When I got to Romania, I was staying with some gypsy friends. And by the way, both of them, husband and wife, are HIV HIV positive. Because back in the Ceausescu days when they were giving inoculations to children, just regular, you know, childhood inoculations at school, they gave the shots to gypsies with used needles. Because just gypsies. Needles are worth a couple dollars. Despised. So I was laying awake on their sofa one night, knowing that I would be visiting Gabriella and her parents the next evening, and I talked to God. I asked him to please arrange a way. God, please arrange a way. That I could see Patrika before we were all together in the same room. All the family. I prayed, God, it would be awkward to say the things I need to say to Patrick in front of his pregnant daughter. Then I fell asleep. Next morning, I was driving in a city about the size of Madison Hat, so you get the kind of the lay of the land. And I spotted Patrick across the road. Now, I should inform you right now, in case you don't know this, coincidences are God's way of remaining anonymous. And I shouted to him across the road, and I pulled over. He ran to me. Shocked to see me. And the first words I said to him were, I know Gabriella is pregnant. And began to weep. Tears were streaming because there had been some stress. So I wiped away the tears with my thumbs. First time I've ever done that to a grown man. And, I, and he said to me in a breaking voice, Craig, I'm not a wealthy man and one more child to raise will be very difficult. And I promised him in that moment that I would help him. He hugged me and he held me and thanked God that we had seen each other on the street and then he asked me, will I see you again before you fly back to Canada? And I said, oh, you bet you will. I'm coming to your house this afternoon. And he was rather startled by that, but even in gypsy families, dads are often the last to know. And when I got to their house later that day, I called mom and dad together along with Gabriella. We made one of those 
those big hand-stacked sandwiches and prayed together. Prayed for strength for Gabriella, for his care over the handiwork forming inside of her and for provision for the household. I think I have a picture of mom and dad and me here. There we are. That's Iowana. That's Patrika, and that's myself. And then look at this picture. Ayan Gabriel was born four months later. And six weeks after his birth, I flew back to Romania to dedicate him to Jesus in the gypsy church that I had first helped to plant back in Rudari. Look at this picture. his baby dedication. Gabriella's dad was sitting front and center in the church that morning, supporting his daughter, supporting that baby. We've dedicated a, uh, a little baby boy that might not have been, but for the amazing grace of God. Patrika since has become a, uh, a sincere and dedicated follower of Christ. His heart is warm again because the person of peace has met the Prince of Peace. That, uh, that same afternoon, after the church service back at his home in Betty, he talked to me privately. In kind of hushed tones. He said, you wouldn't believe the things that I saw in my home when I was a child. And again, he began to weep, and I pushed a little further to learn that he was speaking of spiritual manifestations from the dark side. But he wouldn't elaborate. I was concerned about what he told me, and what this would mean for his walk with Christ. He's a baby Christian. I just wanted to help him sweep up the past a little bit, you know. Nevertheless, I returned to Canada with, with great anticipation that God was indeed at work in Bedia. Each time that I stayed with him, I would try to revisit the conversation about what Patrika had experienced as a young child. And each time his eyes would, would well up heavy with tears. But there was no further talk about it. A few months later, I suggested to Patrika that he should be baptized in water. He agreed, and I arranged to have a, a portable tank set up on the road outside of his home. After I preached a street service, I baptized him. We have a picture of the baptism, I think, I, with uh, several dozen witnesses to his testimony. There he is, just after he had come out of the water. 
a very spontaneous response of worship to God. It was so real to him. It was, uh, it was moving for me as well. But as I lay awake in my bed later this day, that night, suddenly this blaring, obnoxious music began to play into the night sky. From a home directly across the road. And coming from uh, Patrika's brother's house. Within, uh, within weeks of this baptismal service, enough interest was generated in the village that we purchased land and built a small church. I think we've got a picture of the church. But you see, and this is the church, by the way. This isn't the Pentecostal church or the Baptist church or the Alliance. This is the church. If there wasn't this church, there would be no church but the Orthodox Church, which is really primarily a museum. But in responding to the call that there is no church and we must go and speak of a Savior, we had kicked a demonic hornet's nest. And I would soon find out more directly what kind of hornets we were dealing with. The agitation from Patrika's brother, whose name was Georgie, living just across the road, continued to escalate. I FaceTime with Patrika and I insisted, this time, this time I insisted that he tell me what happened in their home when they were children. Because I suspected the animosity had been there between the two brothers since they were small. And finally he was willing to talk. He told me that when he was a very young boy and his younger brother, his younger brother Georgie was still in their mother's womb, a demonic spirit, in fact there were two, entered their home. Only one spirit spoke to his mother and said, I want to have Georgie. And she naturally responded as any mother would. You can't have my son. To which the spirit replied, then I will take your voice instead. And she was instantly mute. Spirit returned about two weeks later with the same request. I want to have Georgie. And in return, I will give you your voice back. Again, the request met an emphatic no, and for five years, this young mother remained mute. Once her voice returned... These troubling visits continued for another five years. Now, pause here. It shouldn't surprise us that in a region where gypsies readily practice forms of occult, like witchcraft and crystal ball sorcery and tarot cards, tea leaves, palm readings, etc. That left unchecked because of no church presence 
for generations. Principalities and powers can overwhelm, and in Vedia, they did. Decades later, for God's sovereign reasons, the grace and peace of Jesus has possessed Patrika. While his younger brother remained in the destructive grip of the enemy, manifesting violent and destructive behavior. I should also mention, even when he walked past the two properties, Patrika's is all painted and clean and pristine. Georgie's is like somebody just uh, brought in a, a bulldozer and kind of knocked stuff over. Even in that sense, you can, you, can, you can visibly see it, the dishevelment. <clears throat> As we continue to talk about these issues and sensing that this agitated threat from across the road wasn't going to subside anytime soon, I told Patrika that he should take olive oil and anoint every outside corner of his house. Each doorway, each window well. And finally I told him to anoint the fence and the gateway. I said, as you apply the oil to your home, Pray the protection of Jesus over your property and over everyone who lives there. Uh, let's show that picture of a, uh, this is the house and the gate. I want you to have a picture of this. So that's the entrance into his home. Now listen to this. Two weeks later, a text came from Gabriella. Let me read you her words. This is verbatim. This is what I took off her text to me. Craig, the whole family is upset. My father's brother and his six sons came over to our house swearing he wanted to beat my father and brother-in-law. They said they wanted to kill us all. No reason. We didn't do anything. They came with axes and knives, but we closed the gate to our yard. If Georgia comes over to us, I'll hit him on the head rather than see my mother cry. And if you met Gabriella, she's about this tall. We have no way to defend ourselves. And now listen to this part. Today they could not enter our property. George cut himself with his own knife on his hands and cut his head on glass. He could not enter the house where we were. I FaceTimed uh, the family as soon as I read that message. 
they had turned off all the lights in the house and they were huddled and cowering like terrified lambs among wolves. But the wolves never got to them. That anointed fence and gate held strong. They told me that Georgie was enraged at not being able to enter the property and swore that he was going to set the house on fire to kill the youngest of the oldest. And there were, there were at least two, maybe three babies in the house at the time. So put yourself there. So Karen and I immediately began to call family members to intercede in prayer. And the turmoil ended as fast as it started. And things remained calm for, for some time until one Sunday afternoon when Patrika was playing worship music out on his compound while he was working in his yard. Um, he agitated some, some spirits, I guess. And when he opened his gate, and I find that interesting, always have, when he opened his gate and left the property to get something from his car, which was parked on the road, he was suddenly attacked by one of Georgie's sons and had his head driven repeatedly into the gravel road. Now, he's a 65-year-old man, you guys. These are 20-something nephews that are pulverizing him. A picture of him here, I think. Yeah, there he is. And then one Sunday afternoon, a few weeks later, while walking two of his granddaughters home from church, he was attacked from behind by two of George's sons and hit forcefully in the mouth with a stick or a stone. He doesn't know because it knocked him silly for a few minutes. As soon as he was able to make his way back to his house, the family immediately video called me and showed me a bloody Patrika sitting on the edge of the bed with his top row of teeth knocked out. There he is. Raising his hands to his shoulders in this shocked abandon. I was crushed, you guys. I care about these people a lot, and I didn't know what to do. I was at a loss of how to help them from so far away. So I prayed. And then shared the story of Patrika having his teeth knocked out to a small mailing list I have for my ministry. And I want you to sign up. I need you to sign up. Within days, the response completely covered the cost of implants. And I think we got a picture of, how's that for a million dollar smile? That's what the church does, though, okay? So get around that. That's the body of Christ. We took it from there to there. That's redemptive action.
And the next I determined to go to prayer about the ongoing problem of his vicious brother and nephews. My son Jesse, he of the organ harvesting story, said to me, we need to pray for their salvation. And I said, yes, and for the divine protection of my friends who are God's children. I told him, I'm going to ask God to do whatever is necessary. Then my supporters paid for a lawyer. In Romania, you have to have a lawyer before you go to the police. Can't really explain it, but that's the way it works. And the nephew who attacked Patrika and knocked his teeth out was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. The second nephew involved was given a suspended sentence. Now you go, well, that's not, is that, is that good? If you understood the level of, of harshness and animosity and, and anger and meanness necessary. Sometimes we have to restrain the heartless. And then suddenly Georgie died. They said it was kidney failure. God knows the beginning and God knows the end. I'm grateful to have the trust of Patrika and his immediate family. I can't state strongly enough that gypsies are very suspicious of and very close to the outside world, people like me. And they have earned their true friendship. In fact, they routinely call me a member of their family. It's nothing less than the favor of God. And I thank him for that. I know that Pastor Aaron shared a bit of this gypsy tale with you a few days after we'd had coffee back in December. Gabriella knows that I'm here this morning at Mission Hill. She texted me this morning and said, we pray for you today. So let me bring you up to speed with her, with your involvement into her life and world. She's now 22 years old, and in her ancient culture, where girls are routinely spoken for and married, off by 12 or 13 or 9 or 10. I know one lady, and you know, one gypsy lady, who's had 21 children. Not to raise them, to sell them. A girl in, uh, in that culture is considered older to marry by the time she reaches 18 or 19 years old. And because a gypsy woman finds her identity in her man, she's been left in a somewhat helpless and a vulnerable state. And now that she has a child, her prospects are reduced further. And because she is intrinsically tied to this man because he's the father of her child, she is easily wooed back. 
Three times I have coaxed her back to her family after she told me of his violent behavior. Amazingly, I was able to get him to speak with me on the phone where I expressed my anger. He replied that it wasn't so bad. Um, I don't hit her that hard. I disagreed and told her to get out of there. So one afternoon while she, while he was, uh, pardon me, while he was out, again drinking with his friends, she ran from the house with her baby, leaving all her possessions. <laughs> Called out to a stranger on the street and used that person's phone to call her brother to come and pick her up. When her husband returned to find them gone, he piled all her clothes, the baby's clothes, all her possessions, all her personal items, all her documents, you name it, into a pile in the middle of the road and burnt them all. And to try to bring a measure of relief to her life and to her future, her father and I purchased a home for her and her child a couple of years ago. It needed a good uh, rat extermination. Kind of pungent when you walked in there. But it is structurally sound and we're working on renovating it. I think we have a picture here. Yeah, there it is. So the greenhouse back there, that's the original home. And then I decided to build an extension onto it. That's so her father and mother can also live there and uh, they can get away from an abusive family that lives across the road from where they're presently living and her and her baby won't be so alone and vulnerable. Your uh, Christmas missions gift. You talk to my wife after about how much that meant to me. About how much that meant to them. Um, that gift is going to fund the roof for that structure that you see there. Were, you, were we able to cue that video? Hi, my name is Gabriela. Thank you, thank you, Pastor Aaron and the church for helping my the roof. God bless you and thank you very, very much. <laughs> Bye. I like this. <laughs> so, uh, you did that. You are doing that. So, thank you. Just as I come to a close pretty quickly here, let me circle back to where we started this morning. A message comes to me. That there was no church in a gypsy village called Bedia. And we must go and talk about a savior. I think, I think this photo kind of sums up the result of that challenge. 
Let's put you in God. And the person of peace now serves as a needed and dependable associate pastor at that church. I don't know if I said it to you guys already. I said it to the first service. You know, people get saved, and then some people get transformed. That's a transformed man. Fast work. He, um, he earns a meager living driving his car between the village of Betia and a city called Giorgio, about 20 miles up the road. Picks up fares along the highway and in different villages along the way. He makes a few dollars. And when I'm staying at his home, he's always up early. First one up. Feeding his poultry. He's got a little poultry farm kind of attached to the back of his house. And as soon as the birds are fed, he squints through his reading glasses to read some scripture. I watch him. I watch him through a window. He doesn't know I'm watching him. He reads some scripture before spending some time in prayer, talking to, talking to Jesus. And then he prepares me breakfast. Telling Karen a couple days ago, he's got this broken toaster, and he learned that I like toast, <laughs> and I prefer toast rather than salami in the morning for breakfast. But it's, but it's broken. So he stands there and he holds the, the lever thing down with his foot. <laughs> which is, you know, quite appetizing and enticing. <laughs> and then one morning he pulls out the Nutella. And I go, oh, I like that. So we just went to town on the Nutella and found out that it was, it was for David, Gabriella's baby, I am. So we ate his food. <laughs> I love him uh, I love him very much um, even his breakfast sometimes it's enjoyable and other times I don't know what I'm eating but Jesus told me back in that scripture right that I'm supposed to eat what's put in front of me I, uh, I love him very much I love his whole family very much My final thought here, you guys. Let me be clear about this. My love for them is not what compels me to minister to them. If my love for them was the constraining factor, Paul talked about this, I would reduce myself to nothing more than a Christian humanist. I'd be the Red Cross. Looking out for the poor physical needs of the poor different people. Instead, my motivation is this. Jesus 
deserves the reward of his suffering. Jesus deserves the reward of his suffering. He died for them. He bled out for them. He deserves the reward of his suffering. If they were to starve to death without any clothes and still have the salvation that Jesus bought for them, they're miles ahead. Jesus deserves the reward of his suffering. Don't let that buys for us. There's this uh, obscure little verse found in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 12. I love this little verse. It says, As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued. So now interject gypsies living in Vedia and you will understand why I do what I do. There is a lion that wants to ravage the flock. Has tried. A flock that I work to guide and to protect. I will reach and grab and fight and tear for the ones that Jesus has put in my sightline. I will do everything I can can do to present them to the Savior. The one who deserves the reward of his suffering.